Welcome to Frontline Church South OKC Sermon Podcast. Each week we will have new sermon content from Sunday mornings, both video and audio options. Please visit south.frontlinechurch.com for more information. If you have any questions, need prayer, or have any other needs at all, please email hello at frontlinechurch.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. Scripture for today's teaching is Mark 14, 27 through 52. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. Jesus said to him, Truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hand of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out against us a robber with swords and clubs to capture me. Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. This is the word of God to us. Amen. Y'all have a seat. 
uh, I heard like a question mark when some of you said, thanks be to God. You're like, is this where we're going? Like a naked guy? Is he streaking today? Is that what this is about? Yes, that's what this sermon is about. It's about streaking, and uh, that's, that's the big message today. Not really. I'm joking. Um, aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that that's not what this sermon is about? I am. Um, so uh, my name is not Andrew Burkhart. Um, I'm Brandon. I get to serve as one of the pastors here at the church. And uh, specifically, I get to work with uh, community group leaders, which uh, just means that I get to serve and uh, be on a team with a bunch of really amazing men and women who are laying their lives down to love and serve and bless many of you who are in community groups. And uh, so shout out to all the community group leaders. And then um, I also want to say, you know what, you guys are probably tired of hearing me say this, but I have the microphone. So, um, and that is just that if you're not in a community group, um, I want to encourage you to get in one. And um, if you need help finding one, um, I would love to help you with that. Um, so grab me after the service, or we have a ton of leaders that would love to help you get connected. Um, so uh, let's do that. Let's get you plugged in. Um, we would love to help. And uh, so that's what I do here at the church, is just a lot of shameless plugs about community groups. Um, and uh, I have been in vocational ministry for uh, going on 16 years now. So I'm thinking it might stick. Uh, so I've been doing this for a little while. And um, one, of the most, one of the most difficult things, um, to be honest with you, one of the most difficult things about being a pastor that I experience regularly um, is entering into, with other people, entering into seasons of grief, um, stepping into places that are hard for other people, when people have um, experienced uh, maybe suffering or pain or loss, sitting with somebody who uh, is maybe angry, maybe they're experiencing frustration, disappointment, maybe they've been let down. And, um, and the hard part of that for, for me, and, and maybe for, for all of us, because I think we all do this to some degree, if you're a follower of Jesus, right, we're trying to bear each other's burdens and things like that. But I, I think the hard part of that is like when you've had uh, when you have not shared that same experience, right? Somebody comes to you and they're like, hey, I've been through this really hard thing. Can we sit down and can we talk about it? And, and you've got to like sit and try to sympathize with somebody. And it's like, man, th- there's something in that that for me at least, I feel like just such a fraud, you know? When I sit down with somebody and it's like, man, I've never been through anything like that. Or that seems really, really hard. And I, I feel like I can't relate or identify with you. And, and so, man, I, f- I feel like, as a pastor, I feel that in unique ways because it's my job. And usually people approach me and they're like, um, hey, you know what you're doing, right? So I'm just like, I, I don't know where you got that expectation, but um, I'm going to let you down. And the, the really good news for all of us is that even though that may be true of us, um, we are invited to look to Jesus, right? Not a guy on a stage who could stand up and maybe be a spiritual guru. Like, that's not the invitation. Like, hey, look at me. I've got all the answers. If you're hurting really bad, I've got some really sweet things to whisper into your ear. It's not that. It's like, hey, let's lift our eyes and let's look to Jesus. And I, lo- I really like that the, the author of Hebrews talks about Jesus and says that Jesus is able to sympathize with us. He knows what it's like to be us. He knows what it's like to be tempted in the ways that we're tempted. He actually uh, identifies with our weaknesses. So what that all means is that, friends, wherever you're at today, whatever your story is today, 
We're invited to draw near to Jesus, to lift our eyes, and to look to him. And the scriptures say that when we do, we'll receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So I want to just invite all of you. I want to do this, right? And so I'm going to, I'm going to pray to this end, and then we'll, we'll jump in. So God, we come to you today, and uh, we just we want to bring all of ourselves, our whole story, all the weaknesses, all the pain, disappointment, suffering that we're carrying into this room. And, um, and God, we thank you that you can speak to those things. We thank you that you get us. You understand what it's like to be us. And, uh, and, and you identify even in our weakness. God, even when I can't, even when we can't do that for one another, you can. Thank you, God. And I pray that today, by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would come and you would help us, teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, so today we're going to look to Jesus. We're going to look to him, and we're going to see just three things that he models for us in this text. So let's get into it. First thing that we see in this text is that Jesus shows us how to experience the failures of community. Jesus shows us how to experience the failures of community. And it's weird to say that as the community pastor. It's very weird to say that. I just now told you how great it was. Um, So that's weird for me. Um, But here's the thing. Uh, You know this and I know this. Like, we regularly talk about community. And we talk about, like, God has this really beautiful vision of what community is. And there are these aspirations that we have, these things that we want to strive towards. Um, but I have, I have stood in front of you before and I've said, hey, we really want our community groups to be a place where we have 80% of the care in this church happening, right? Like uh, the, the mission of our church, the discipleship in our church. Like, I'm sorry, guys, Andrew Burkhart cannot disciple all of you. So we want our community groups to be a place where 80% of discipleship is happening. And anytime I say that, I always see like a few of you kind of like lean back and you like, give me this like, yeah, buddy, like I've been in a community group. Like I know that, that community groups are sometimes a busted mess and they're not perfect. And like all of these things that you're saying are aspirations are just that. And, and so uh, even as we hear a lot of this, I just want to, I just want to address the reality is sometimes there is this gap between what we strive for and what we hope for and then what's real. And the fact is, the bottom line is that for a lot of us in this room, we have felt that gap in terms of community. We have felt failures. We have experienced those things. And so what I want to say to you and what I want, what I want to invite you into is to just see uh, some of what happens in, in the life of Jesus in this text. And, and really just a couple of things. Number one, here's something that we see. Jesus experiences betrayal by those closest to him. Jesus experiences betrayal by those closest to him. Think, think about the, the three closest friends that he has, right? His inner circle, Peter, James, John. He says, let's go. They go into the garden and Jesus is like troubled deeply. He's gonna pray and what do they do? They fall asleep, right? In Jesus' hour of, of deepest need, of greatest sorrow, he's saying, hey, I just need you to come with me and have my back right now. Stay awake. And instantly they fall asleep, right? 
And, uh, and then, so Jesus is like, let me give you two more chances. And what do they do? They fall asleep, and they fall asleep, right? Like, this is, this is failure, right? But it's, it's not just that. You broaden out, you think about the rest of the disciples. And um, we talked about last week, these disciples who'd, who'd shared a meal with Jesus, right? They, had, they all drank from the same cup. They drank from Jesus' cup, and they said, hey, we are with you. Even at the beginning of this text, Jesus is like, you are all going to run away. You're going to flee at the end of this. Um, you will scatter. And they're like, no, not us, Jesus. Like, we are sticking around even to death. Like, Peter's, like, leading the way. Like, nothing is going to stop us. It's ride or die with this crew. And everybody else is in. And then what do we see by the end of this text? Everybody walks away from Jesus. They leave Jesus completely alone, right? This was the the crew that said, hey, we will be with you. Even if it means death for us, it doesn't matter. And trouble comes and they split. And then even consider Judas, which like if you grew up in church or you know this story, um, you instantly, like as soon as Judas is introduced into any story, um, you're immediately like, bad guy. He's the bad guy. And, uh, and, and that's what you're thinking the whole time. But here's what's crazy is like right here, Mark mentions Judas and he doesn't say Judas, the bad guy. He doesn't say Judas, the betrayer right here. Verse 43, he mentions Judas as one of the 12. And so here's the reminder for you and me. Hey, Judas, the one that Jesus hand picked the one that Jesus loved and was close to. For three years of ministry, they walked together. They knew each other. Judas saw Jesus do incredible things, heard sermons, right? And and so now, like, you feel like the sting of, of not just a bad guy who's doing bad stuff, like, well, of course he would do that, but no, this is a close friend, somebody who would have at one time said, I'm a brother to you, right? Like, I will do anything for you. I will die for you. And yet in this moment, doesn't just fall asleep, doesn't just turn his back to Jesus and run, but actually has the gall to approach Jesus to still pretending to be his friend, by the way, calls him rabbi, gives him a kiss, and then stabs him in the back. So Jesus experiences betrayal by close ones, And then also Jesus experiences institutional failure. Think about the the crowd that comes to arrest him. Chief priests, scribes, elders, right? Judas is the one leading this mob, but but who is the mob made up of? It's a bunch of folks who essentially make up the Sanhedrin, right? These are the religious people of the day coming from the temple to arrest Jesus, right? Right? It's ironic. Like these are the people who are supposed to be doing the work of God, who are supposed to be doing the will of God, and yet they show up to do their best to to thwart and undermine his plan. These are spiritual, religious leaders of the day that Jesus' friends and family would have looked to, right, for help, for authority, uh, for leadership, right? Like, Like these are the These are the institutions, these are the people, these are the leaders that we can trust and rely on, and they will be there for us, right? These are the people who should have been heralding the coming of the Messiah and celebrating Jesus, but instead, what do we see? We see this institution almost crumbling before our eyes as they bring shame to their office and seek to tear Jesus down and put him to death. And so, friends, I just want to say this. 
and all of that. Like, I, don't, I don't know all of your stories, but I know that for some of us, we've experienced having close people to us just simply not be there when we needed them, right? You have close friends that you just said, hey, I just need you to stay awake and be my friend, you know? And they fell asleep. You've had friends walk away from you, right? Stuff got hard in your life. Maybe you were, you were dealing with something heavy or, uh, or you know, whatever. And, and instead of just, uh, just being present with you, they actually walked away. They couldn't handle it and they left you alone, isolated. Maybe, you, maybe you've experienced betrayal. Maybe you've got church hurt that you're, you're carrying into this place. And I mean, we could probably all tell stories and all um, share some of the wounds and, and pain that we carry into this place. But here's what I want you to see. Whatever it is that you're bringing, whatever it is that you're bringing, hey, you are not alone in this. Jesus understands. He identifies with you. He has experienced it too. And I just want to let that sink in because my inclination is to rush past that and go like, you know, like, yeah, things went bad for a minute, but let's remember like what Jesus is about to do is he's going to die and he's going to come back. And then he's going to like rally the troops. And even the ones who walked away are going to come back. And the whole book of Acts is all about like the comeback story of the church. And it's going to be amazing. And, and it's really tempting to zoom past this and to put a nice, neat bow on things. But, but let's be real. Like what Jesus is showing us here is like, hey, what happened, happened. Like this is real. There was, there was real pain here. There's real abandonment here. There's real failure here. Jesus isn't pretending that none of that happened. It's not just water under the bridge. There is a real offense and there is a debt that must be paid. And that's what sin is. That's what sin does. It's an injustice that must be paid for. And what we see is that there are two options that Jesus can take. One is like the Liam Neeson approach where it's like, hey, you wronged me and now you owe me, right? But Jesus doesn't go there, right? That's why he doesn't say, hey, after I am raised up, I will find you. I will be out for blood, right? Could have gone there, but he didn't. Instead, what does he do? Hey, you wronged me. You said you would be there and you left me. That was real. That happened. You wronged me, but I will take the loss. I will absorb your sin and I will pay your debt for you. This is what forgiveness looks like. And friends, I just want to say that whatever your story is and whatever hurt and wounds and baggage that you carry in, um, hey, and, and if you haven't, like, just, just remember, Jesus taught a slave uh, or the servant is not greater than their master. Like, that's coming. Like, we will, we will all experience failure to some degree in this way. Like, it's, it's coming for you. But whatever you've experienced already, whatever you do experience, what we see here is that Jesus forgives and he invites us to forgive if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus, here's what this means. Forgiveness ought to be second nature to you. And the reason why that is, is because first nature to you is that you are a sinner who's been forgiven. 
Like, that's, that's first nature. And so, listen, here's, here's our story. We've sinned against a holy and perfect God. We, like the disciples, have turned our backs to him, and we are the ones who ran away from him. Like, it's easy to point at the disciples and see where they got it wrong. Hey, we have done the very same thing, and we deserve punishment for those things. There's been a real offense and a debt that must be paid. But if you are in Christ, that means that you have experienced forgiveness. And because of that, Ephesians 4.32 says that we should forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. It doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. It doesn't mean it's just water under the bridge. Forgiveness means you say, hey, I'm going to absorb the loss and I'm going to forgive you. And so Jesus shows us how to experience not just the failure of community, but also how to forgive. And the second thing that we see is that Jesus shows us how to pray and get a no from the Father. Jesus shows us how to pray and get a no from the Father. It's really tempting uh, for us to think about Jesus as just God in a skin suit. And so when he prays and God says yes to him, it's like, well, yeah, obviously he's Jesus, you know. He's praying perfectly. He's doing everything right, you know. It's just what it is. Like you almost have this image of like the interaction between Jesus and the Father must be like Jesus going like, hey, I'm praying, and the Father just going like, hey, you know what? Yes, I mean, obviously, you're Jesus, so I don't even know why you're asking right now. But that's not what it is, right? We believe, yes, Jesus is fully God, but we also believe that Jesus is fully man. And so when Jesus enters into prayer, he's praying as a man and he's modeling something for us that's really, really beautiful. He's not saying like, hey, because I'm righteous, God's gonna just say yes to everything I ask for, right? He's not saying like, hey, because I'm, I'm good or anything like that, so just get better. Here's what Jesus is modeling for us. He's modeling that God is a father. How does, how does Jesus pray? He prays, Abba, Father. Now, that term, Abba, is not like a formal prayer name for God, right? It's informal. If you're a dad in the room, this is what your child might call you. Dad, daddy, papa, you know, whatever. That's, that's what this means. This is Jesus coming to his dad. And he's, he's showing us, hey, we are children of this father. This is intimate language, and we get, like, this isn't special treatment for Jesus. We get to do the very same thing. Romans, Romans 8.15 says, Christians, you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, right? We're children, and so we can ask for things from our father like children. Um, I'm a dad, and um, as a dad who is uh, really imperfect and, and sinful. Um, I would never just like ignore my kids if they didn't ask for something in just the right way, right? Um, recently uh, on spring break, we, we took a big road trip. Uh, we have this family tradition in my family where we like to wait until gas prices are at their all-time high and just drive as much as possible. So we've been doing that. And uh, no, we went to some really incredible uh, parks and uh, went to some cool towns. And we stopped in this one quaint little town that had uh, kind of a, just an old-fashioned ice cream parlor 
called kaleidoscopes. Isn't that cute? Um, and, uh, and my kids just, they said, hey, dad, can we get ice cream one night? And, um, and uh, they didn't beseech me at all. They didn't beseech me. They didn't, they didn't have like a 10-minute speech. They didn't, there wasn't like a lot of hand-wringing or groveling, right? Like they didn't, it wasn't like King's English or anything like that. Like what, what they did was they said, hey, dad, you, like we would like some ice cream, and I was like, of course, you're a human being. And, and they knew, hey, because I'm their dad, because I love them, they can come to me and they can ask for things. It doesn't mean I always give them the answer that they wanted, but they know I'm their dad and they can just ask. And what Jesus is, is saying here is, hey, God is a father who hears our prayers and he answers our prayers. You're his, you're his child. He loves you. He wants to receive you and hear from you, right? He wants to respond. And this is why Jesus can confidently call him Father. And this is why he can, he can cry out and say, hey, all things are possible for you. I know that. I believe this is true. So, so what do we do here with the fact that Jesus is told no? Right, because this is, this is one of the only times in all of scripture that Jesus prays a prayer for himself, right? So let that sink in. Jesus, one of the only times in scripture that he prays something for him and God says no, right? Jesus is met with silence, not an answer that he wanted. And, and this is significant because we, we, we pray. Sometimes I, I pray to God earnestly, I think, Remember that he's a father who loves me. And I go to God when I'm afraid or I'm anxious or I'm worried. And I want to be able to cry out to him in faith like he's my dad and I trust him and I believe. Like Jesus said, hey, I know all things are possible with you. And then I'm, I feel like I'm met with silence. Or I, I don't get the answer that I thought I would get. And I want to say again, hey, Jesus knows what that feels like too. He knows what it's like to pray and to feel terrified and to be told no. Not because he did something wrong, not because God stopped loving him, but because the answer was no. And hey, if Jesus was told no by the Father, we should not be surprised when it goes that way for us sometimes too. But what Jesus shows us here is that we should keep trusting our Father. Remember, He's still your Father. I love that, that Mark points out He doesn't just go the first time and pray, Father, I know that you're able, like, like, like if you wanted to, this cup could pass from me. I know that all things are possible. Like He goes out and He prays that the first time. But you know what's amazing? He's met with silence. He, he goes, he doesn't get the answer he wanted. And what does he do? He says he goes back and he prays the same way. He says the same thing, right? What do we see in Jesus? It's not just persistence, but it's this continual remembering, this continual remembering that God is still your father, even when the answer is hard to hear. That God is still present and he's still able. And so Jesus is going like, hey, remember that he loves you. Keep praying. Keep trusting him. 
And this takes us to the the third thing that we see, that Jesus shows us how to hope in God. Jesus shows us how to hope in God. And, And this is really huge because for many of us, when we experience failure, uh, uh, failure of people around us, when we experience failure of institutions that were supposed to catch us when we fall, right? When it, when it feels like life is sort of coming apart at the seams, when it feels like God might be silent, it feels dark, what, what I want to do, and I think probably what a lot of us want to do, is we want to sort of just grasp for something that is sturdy and sure and true, right? We want to find something solid to stand on and to cling to. Um, when, my, when my wife and I were engaged, uh, we flipped a house, um, not, not because it was a good idea. Um, I, don't, I don't recommend it. Uh, but, uh, but we were like, hey, you know what? Things are pretty stressful with just generally like, you know, planning a wedding. Let's, let's flip a house. That seems like a good plan. Um, and really what happened was that uh, we just, we were excited to be married. And um, we, we were like, man, we want to do this and we want to have a house and um, had all these really beautiful dreams. And so somebody came to us and they were like, hey, there's a house and um, it's a pretty good deal, you know. Uh, and we were like, we'll take it. And we didn't even look at it. Not, a, not even a joke. Like we didn't look at it at all. We were like, yes, we want it and we'll live there. Um, and, uh, and so we go and we, we look at the house and... Um, it had, uh, it had like the, the wood paneling on the walls from the 70s, not like the cute kind, the kind that you're like, we got to immediately get rid of this and burn it. Um, and so we were like, but, you know, we can take that down and just probably throw some paint on the walls that I'm certain are good behind that. Um, and, uh, and what we found was that they were not, you know, like we, we got the house, we got in and we started like we pull that paneling down. It was like, this drywall is hideous. There are bugs. There's like mold and grossness. And, um, and it was like every, every layer we, we tore out, it was like there was, you know, more problems. Oh, there's no insulation in this, in this wall behind this drywall. And, um, and it was like after, you know, everything w- w- was come out, we eventually got to this place where we were just like, man, we, we're going to just keep going until we get to something solid, something that's not uh, broken, something that is uh, secure. And so we got like all the way down to the studs and like a foundation and a roof over it. And we were like, this seems like a good place to stop. Like, otherwise I think we'll just have land. Um, and uh, so, so we were like, let's, let's, uh, let's go from here. And it was, it was, those were the good things. And we were like, okay, so now we're going to, we're going to kind of build, build back and, um, and uh, we'll just figure it out, you know, while we, while we are newlyweds. We'll just live in this, like, work in progress. And, uh, and I just want to say that that's a, that's a weird place to be. But this is, this is a moment um, where this is happening constantly, right? Um, even if you are not, quote, deconstructing your faith by choice, um, you have to do something when the roof caves in, right? Like, you got to figure out, like, what to do with the mold in the corner. You have to figure out what 
to, to do and, and how to adapt when the pipes start to leak. Like, you can't pretend everything is just fine, right? Like, you have to admit, like, this is happening. Like, there are some things that I grew up with that I thought were true, and it turns out those things aren't even in the Bible. Like, there are some things that I'm, I'm clinging to and I shouldn't be clinging to, and I'm not clinging to the right things. And, and like, you have to deal with those things, and it can be really daunting, and it can be really, really difficult. Like, like even just building back a house, like there's something funny that happens, like somewhere along the way, like the excitement starts to fade and you're like, can we just sell this? Can we sell a house like this and just buy a house that's like good and needs no work? Like, cause I'd really like to do that. I'd really love to just bail on this project. And some of you are like in the middle of a life project where you're like, I would love to just bail on this right now. Like I'm, I'm trying to work out my faith and it's really hard. Right? I'm wrestling with what I believe. I'm wrestling with God. And, um, and this is really, really hard. And I'm tired of it. And I'm tired of hurting. And I just want to do something else. I just want to do something easy. I just want to hear yes, you know, when I, when I ask for something. But Jesus shows us how to hope in God here. What it looks like to trust him, not our own understanding. To lean on him. Yes, people have Failed. Yes, sometimes we hear no when we hoped for a yes. But Jesus is saying, hey, there's something that's way more sure and steady than any of that. Even when it's dark, there's something that's eternal that you can stand on, that you can cling to, that you can hope in. And Jesus is inviting us to hold fast to those things and to trust in a faithful God who always has been and who always will be. This is why Jesus is able to say, not my will, but your will be done. Why? Because I trust you, God. I know that you're a father. I know that you're good. I know that you have me and you've always had me. I've, I've seen it happen. I've experienced your goodness. I've tasted your grace and I know that you will not let go because you're still a good father. So I trust you so your will be done. So close like this today. Jesus identifies with us and he sympathizes with our weaknesses. That's really good news. But but this is not a a two-way street, right? There's a lot that Jesus is stepping into in this passage It's hard for us to wrap our heads around. It's hard for us to understand. Like, I I can't sympathize with what Jesus is walking into. Like, the disciples sure can't, right? They they followed Jesus for a while now, and they see him in a moment start to stagger, start to talk about how sorrowful he, he is in his soul, and they split as soon as trouble comes. And then, and then this text ends in such a weird way right? This naked man running through the garden. And, and we, you know, there's a lot that we don't know here. Like he's anonymous. We don't know who this young man is. Um, and a lot of commentaries go into all of that. And they're like, you know, we think it was probably the author, Mark, and, you know, or, you know, maybe, you know, maybe a few outliers are like, it could be some, somebody. Like, I don't know who it was. Like, I think probably if it mattered that much, if the author of 
um, Mark wanted us to know that. He probably would have said, like, this is who it was, so now you know. Stop asking, right? But, but the question I have is, like, why? Like, this is such a bizarre detail, such a weird thing to include. Like, we already know that the disciples all fled, that they left Jesus behind. So, like, why are you introducing some random new character who's naked? Like, what's the point of that? What is the significance of that? And here's what I think it is. Can you think of any other time in Scripture when someone in a garden ran away, fleeing in the shame of their nakedness? This is, this is meant to, to bring to mind the shame and the hiding of Adam. Right? The shame and the hiding that's built into all fallen humanity. The shame and hiding that's built into me and you and into these disciples who abandoned Jesus in shame and humiliation. Timothy Gombas says they had previously left everything to follow Jesus, but here they are embodied in the young man's leaving everything behind to abandon Jesus. He becomes a symbol of an anti-disciple. Friends, the disciples in this story are repeating the failures of Adam in the Garden of Eden. They are the ones who are are pictured faithless, sleeping, running away, naked, in shame. But Jesus, on the other hand, Jesus is the truly faithful new Adam. Where the old Adam said no to God's will in the Garden of Eden, Jesus, the new Adam, says yes to the Father's will. Adam's no to the Father brought death, but Jesus' yes to the Father is bringing about life, but at cost to himself. Hey, you may have been failed by your community group. You may have people in your life that have turned away from you. Jesus identifies with you in that. He gets it. But unlike Jesus, you have turned away from God in your unrighteousness. And as a result, there's a debt that must be paid. That's why when it comes to this cup, this is the one place here that Jesus decidedly will not identify with his people, but he will take their place altogether. The new Adam comes to clothe the old and all his descendants and deal with the fruit of their sin and betrayal, of our sin and betrayal. And this is why Jesus ultimately receives the no from his father and he surrenders to the will of God. This is why Jesus in the garden agonizes because in the garden, he's beginning to taste this cup already, right? Jesus wasn't afraid of a few false trials. He wasn't afraid of a crown of thorns. He wasn't afraid of a wooden cross, right? Jesus didn't stagger or feel sorrow and overcome with anguish in the garden because of what was about to happen to his physical body. There have been martyrs since that time who have died in far more gruesome ways, and they went to their deaths singing and praising God. So what's happening here is not that Jesus is wimping out because he's afraid to die. Jesus in this moment is overcome with anguish because of what is in the cup, This is the wrath of God. Isaiah 51, Jeremiah 25, 15 says that this cup is full of God's wrath, the cup of God's wrath. 
Jesus mentions it early in this text. He says that the shepherd will be struck and, and the sheep are going to scatter. And he's, he's quoting from Zechariah 13, 7. And what he says is it's not, it's not Roman soldiers who are going to strike the shepherd. It's not uh, Jewish religious leaders who are going to sh- strike the shepherd. The prophet says it's God himself who will, sh- who will strike the shepherd. And Revelation 16, 19 talks about the enemies of God that will drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. So when Jesus relents to the will of his father, he can already taste this cup of God's wrath that was meant for his enemies. And because of our sin, hey friends, that's you and me. And because Jesus is taking our cup, Jesus God looks at Jesus on the cross and he sees our sin. James Edwards says it this way. He says, it is one thing fearful as it will be to answer for our own sins before a holy and almighty God. Who can imagine what it will be like to stand before God to answer for every sin and crime and act of malice and injury and cowardice and evil in the world? in acquiescing to the Father's will of bearing the sin of many, interceding for transgressors, Jesus necessarily experiences an abandonment and darkness of cosmic proportions. The worst prospect of becoming the sin bearer for humanity is that it spells complete alienation from God, an alienation that will shortly echo above the desolate landscape of Calvary. My God, my God, Why have you forsaken me? Not his own mortality, but the specter of identifying with sinners so fully as to become the object of God's wrath against sin. It is this that overwhelms Jesus' soul to the point of death. So friends, hey, Jesus identifies with our weakness so that you and me don't have to identify with his agony. Instead, he meets us in our nakedness and in our shame, and because he was stripped naked, because he drank our cup of wrath on the cross, we can be clothed in his righteousness, and we can drink from his cup today.